You say, okay, so you're angry. Okay, what do we do about that? How do we move this dialogue forward? What do you actually want? And one of the things that we see with, with these groups in particular is that they can't coalesce around a set of values, a set of principles, other than to want to punch up and say, we know who's evil. We know who's wrong. We know who has the power. We want to take that power down. But we don't necessarily have a constructive way to advance the dialogue and say, we have a right to exist. They have a right to exist. How do we coexist? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. We've got another great episode for you today, featuring an in-studio interview with Professor Sam Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and a visiting scholar here at AEI. In recent months, Sam has been through an ordeal that has seemed downright dystopian at times. It all started when he published an op-ed in the New York Times called Think Professors Are Liberal? Try School Administrators, in which he presented research showing that liberal administrators outnumber conservatives by a ratio of 12 to 1. His lesson to college students was, and I quote, I urge you not to accept unthinkingly what your campus administrators are telling you. Sounds like a bedrock principle of free inquiry, right? Wrong. Abrams was immediately denounced and protested by students calling him a racist, sexist, and so on. The usual litany of accusations that follow anyone who challenges campus orthodoxies by calling for challenges to campus orthodoxies. The faculty of Sarah Lawrence either supported the backlash or signed on to a statement saying only that Abrams had a right to publish his research. Meanwhile, Abrams has suffered death threats, destruction of his property, and just about every slander in the book. Hearing this story, we thought it would be fitting to revive Glenn Lowry's 1994 lecture, Self-Censorship in Public Discourse, delivered when Lowry was a professor at Boston University. Of course, Abrams' story is not about self-censorship, but I think you'll see that so much of Lowry's argument, especially his observations about the obsessive search for someone's motives, rings true in light of this very recent story. Now, before we begin, I want to encourage you all to take a listen to Lowry's lecture in full. You can find a link to that in the description below. There's much more in the lecture than we could cover in the podcast, and it's worth listening to in full. Also, before we begin... I'd like to encourage you all to follow us on Twitter, at Bradley Lectures. It's a new account full of the top-notch content you've come to expect from the Bradley Lectures podcast in tweet form. So we'd really appreciate it if you would give us a follow. And with that, here's my interview with Sam Abrams, followed by Glenn Lowry's 1994 lecture, Self-Censorship in the Public Discourse. We've got Professor Sam Abrams here in studio with us here at AEI. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Now, we've uh, we've already begun talking off the record about uh, some of the craziness that uh, Professor Abrams has been through. I just want to start on a, on a note of irony that you teach a class at Sarah Lawrence called Community and Civility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't think of anything more ironic considering that you've uh, been a part of a community for some time uh, up there in suburban New York and... Civility seems to be the last word I would associate with your experience there recently. Now, we've talked about civil society on this podcast many times, and I'd like to just read the title of this class a little bit more poetically. Sure. Can you talk about the, the civility that you've received uh, <laughs> in, this, in this community? So I want to thank you for, for mentioning that. That has been, you know, what I would say hashtag ironic since this whole thing uh, emerged. I taught a course on civility and hearing the concept of hearing the other side and the idea of trying to introduce the key idea of viewpoint diversity to our students. And w- without any hesitation, they became uncivil and mob-like w- within, within moments. But anyway, one, one of the, the goals has been not only to push back against the progressive mob that wants my head, but to provide evidence and constructive suggestions based on data that I've gathered over the past few years to address some of these concerns. You know, it's one thing to sound the alarm. It's, it's, it's another to provide roadmaps or, or a, a starting point. One of the issues with uh, a lot of the mob stuff is that there's a lot of anger. And, you know, since we're just getting off Passover, you know, righteous indignation, as, as God always talks about. But the issue is there's very little constructive in it. And 
you know, I, I, I understand it if a student does it. I, I do understand if student mobs do it. They're students. They don't necessarily know better. They haven't taken... Well, they don't. I mean, part of yeah. our job, my job as a professor, is, try, is to try to expose them to how to think uh, and how to debate and how to really engage in discourse. What scares me more than any of it is They're when... They're not I, getting it from nowhere. Well, the problem is when... Well, they get it from the administrators. But then the problem is when faculty jump on this bandwagon and stop uh, remembering what they were taught in graduate school and, most importantly, stop remembering and, and willfully ignoring or forgetting what their charge they received when they earned their doctorate, which was to bring you know, certain ideas to the table. Uh, that's scary. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting about a place like Sarah Lawrence, and, and we see this at a lot of schools, is that if you look at their founding documents, you look at their mission statements, they really like to wrap themselves around the idea that we are civil, we promote equality of everything in every way, shape, uh, size, color, and form, uh, that we do value true discourse, true dialogue, that we want to hear the other side, that everyone is open to speak, everyone should have a right to speak, no one should feel intimidated, threatened, uh, and silenced. Uh, ironically, at Sarah Lawrence, people are being silenced on a daily basis. Uh, one of the things that I think listeners would be most uh, frustrated to hear, and I think frustrated me the most with this whole uh, debate and discourse, is that when our students um, became offended by the piece that I wrote in the New York Times, which I think uh, was a very good piece, I stand certainly behind it, um, I can understand students being reactionary, can understand students being frustrated with the current state of the political world. I, I understand all of that. Uh, what I think is most egregious about the college and the college's response here was that they didn't support me. The, the administration uh, wanted to know why I wrote the piece. The administration wanted to know why I didn't review the piece and have them take a look at it first. That's, uh, that's a violation of academic freedom, the core belief I have as, as a professor. And uh, my faculty colleagues didn't support me very heavily. After many, many weeks of debate, after, my, after uh, I, I wrote the piece, only 27 faculty members came out in support in a very weakly worded statement. I'm very grateful they wrote it, but it was a weak statement in support that I had the right to publish it. More, more faculty, uh, well over 40, uh, came out uh, opposed to my right to, to write the piece. And, and to me, that's very uh, troublesome for higher education. So we brought you in here today because you are a natural fit to talk about Glenn Lowry's 1994 lecture, Self-Censorship in Public Discourse, particularly because you are being censored. There is, a, there is an attempt to censor you. I want to be very clear. There is an attempt to censor there is an me. Attempt I, to I censor. will not allow that to, to occur. It, it goes against every fiber of my being. Um, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit on, on, on higher, in higher ed is intersectionality. And um, I don't think this is a particularly interesting topic, intersectionality. Every, it applies to everybody. Anyone who takes any course in social psychology or, or sociology uh, will tell you, for, for, for instance, that we are a, a, a agglomeration, an aggregate of various facets that shape who we are, whether it's uh, our racial background, our ethnic background, our gender uh, and so on. These all become who these all shape who we are. So part of my intersectional identity, without any doubt, is is uh, the fact that I'm very proudly Jewish. Uh, one of our values, as I understand it in the Jewish community, is that we argue, we debate, we we challenge people. That's how we move things uh, ahead. At least that's how I was raised, how I've long uh, believed it. I've been saying this for months now. So again, while the school wants to tell me to stop talking, I have no intention of of, of doing that. And uh, once you leave uh, the academic bubble and, and leave places like Sarah Lawrence, the world looks very, very different, and uh, they do not really appreciate universities trying to silence dissent. So one of the things that Lowry says specifically as part of his thesis is, quote, people who hold unpopular points of view are treated uncivilly. That's simply an empirical statement. I'd like to move a little bit beyond that for a second and ask what might actually be a bit of a difficult question, might go into some of your academic work rather than some of your recent uh, experiential learning, uh, which is to say that there's something to be said for the formation of a civil society in which certain norms are taken for granted and reinforced, and hopefully those norms don't take the form of censorship, but there is a sense of decency and indecency, and certainly some things are beyond the pale. Have we simply crossed the line and gone too far? Or are the protesters and those who are treating you uncivilly actually getting at something? Uh, it might be very raw, very crass, and certainly not fair to you, given the content of what you've written, uh, or that piece in the New York Times, which was just just data. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just data about viewpoint diversity in academia. But it, 
are they getting at something? Well, if we're going to talk about Glenn Lowry's piece, one of the very important things that he said in his Bradley lecture was the fact that the facts are not neutral. Uh, now, he observed this close to 25 years ago. When he said it, I, I was too young uh, to know. Of course, I was not in the academy then. Uh, I, I don't know if he were on, was on to something really revolutionary at the time or he just was observing it for the first time himself. But uh, unfortunately, the academy is in a place where facts are not considered absolutely neutral and the content of a, a paper and the idea isn't considered neutral. Uh, who's writing it? Why are they writing it? Uh, Glenn spends a lot of time talking about the motives and can we understand people's motives? Uh, do they have to be revealed? Are they implicit? Are they explicit? Uh, can you even articulate what your motives are? And if a paper is good, is it ignored if it's in a, in a publication that's perceived to be right-wing or, or perceived to be left-wing? Why with them, he asks. Why would you publish with them? Don't you know what they're about? Exactly. So, so to your point, uh, I, 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 I'm troubled largely because... You know the ideas are being are being ignored. First, there's sort of a uh, a vetting of one's values. You have to sort of project who you are. You have to again going back to the intersectionality thing. Say here are all the different groups that I identify with, and therefore I can speak to this and why I have a right to speak to it. Uh, so you know we are sort of framing now and shutting down speech and and real discourse because we're saying who can speak and who can't speak and who has a right to speak on various things. At, at Sarah Lawrence, we had a uh, takeover of the administration building a, a number of weeks ago by a group of students called the Diaspora Coalition. The students, of course, would not identify who wrote uh, this document that they eventually released. Uh, it's online. Feel free to take a, a look at it. One of the demands was that uh, certain classes can only be taught, certain topics can only be taught by certain faculty who have that sort of lived experience. Uh, that's very dangerous. That is, to me, the antithesis of what higher education is. Uh, it prevents the teaching of quite a bit of history, quite a bit of the human condition, uh, and quite a bit about understanding uh, the world if we limit, uh, based on certain you know, characteristics, who can speak and who cannot speak. Uh, and, and as a result, it's been really important to push back on this. Well, I think Professor Abrams has led us to have to begin Professor Lowry's lecture, Glenn Lowry, from 1994, Self-Censorship in Public Discourse. Sam and I will be back in just a few minutes to discuss. Enjoy. I think what we see um, under the rubric of political correctness and contemporary American public life is a manifestation of a more general phenomenon, a more general problem in political deliberation. And I want to speculate or theorize a bit about that. Uh, indeed, I could distinguish between two levels at which the um, argument about uh, political correctness goes on. There's a substantive level in which people are having disputes about uh, gay rights, about affirmative action, about the problem of sexual harassment, uh, what the Santanistas were doing a few years ago or whatever. That is, people are arguing about substantive points. And for many, there's the sense that there's only one point of view that's regarded as admissible or only one point of view that decent people can hold. And so you hear complaints, often from conservatives, about the extent to which in some communities of discourse, particularly universities, not all points of view are heard or people who hold unpopular points of view are treated uncivilly. So there's discussion about the nature of primary deliberation on important public questions. Now, of course, people do disagree about these important questions. We disagree about race and gender about how big the federal government should be, what should be the tax rates, and so on. And that disagreement reflects differences in our values and beliefs, as well as differences in the information that we bring to bear, perhaps also differences in our underlying interests that cause us to represent our positions in one way or another in order to try to manipulate public decision-making apparatus to our own uh, personal gain. By and large, it's my view that those differences in views are healthy, that it's out of the process of the exchange of ideas and argument based on such differences, that the uh, knowledge about society can, um, can grow. But there's another level at which there's argument about uh, political correctness, and that's the level of the, that's talk about the way in which the talking is going on. That's a sort of meta argument, an argument about what form argument can take. I think there's some serious questions in that argument. Who really can get hurt? Who has the standing to raise a question? What about ad hominem inference? The extent to which certain kinds of uh, public statements are precluded or made nearly impossible for some speakers by virtue of the fact that conclusions about their character will be drawn from their very willingness to raise the question in the first place. 
A leading example of that was given in a recent Bradley lecture when Charles Murray gave you a prelude of what he and Richard Herrnstein are going to say in their book that will be published this fall on human differences in intelligence. There is a subject that in the last 30 years uh, is replete with examples of researchers, perfectly respectable people making objective arguments on the basis of evidence, arguments that can be either refuted or verified on the basis of evidence being treated quite shabbily and in some cases really driven from the public square by virtue of the fact that the subject that they would undertake to investigate is regarded as illegitimate. And the question becomes, who would ask the questions that these researchers ask? What kind of person would want to know the answer? Right? So now I begin to talk not so much about the answer to the question, but about the form or admissible structure in which asking and answering questions can take in the society. Well, that's what I'm after when I say my theory of political correctness derives from an uh, understanding about the consequences of uh, the pressures for social conformity within particular communities of discourse on what comes to be acceptable modes of expression. It is, in the um, modern-day parlance of economics, a signaling theory. It's a theory based on the fact that people, when they interact with each other in society, are very much interested in knowing the motives and the values of the agents with whom they interact. They don't want to just know their ideas. They want to know what their objectives are, what their agenda is. People's motives and values cannot be observed. They can only give you testimony about them. We don't know where a speaker is coming from when we are being addressed, particularly when we are being addressed on a subject about which we care very deeply, about which our society is deeply conflicted, on which we have come to rest powerful moral judgments. You disagreed with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, did you? Hmm. What kind of person would do that? Why did you come to that intellectual position? If it turns out that we go back in your past writings, let's just say hypothetically you're a nominee for the Supreme Court, and we go back in your past writings, and we find out that indeed you made an argument against the uh, enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Well, we're prepared to draw some judgments, many of us would be, not just in the partisan heat of a confirmation battle, but even upon reflection. We're prepared to reach some conclusions about what the values and beliefs, not directly observable, but perhaps reflected in this particular piece of argument or expression of such a person might be. And I think one reason why an issue like affirmative action is so um, freighted with all of these taboos has to do with precisely that kind of inferential process, that process in which observers listeners to the speaker, people concerned as to where the speaker is ultimately coming from, what their deepest values and commitments are, find signals, find informative pieces of informative clues in the arguments that individuals are prepared to make uh, about that sensitive question. And again, the ad hominem inference is always there. What kind of person is it who would take this particular stance? Back here in studio with Professor Sam Abrams, and we just heard Glenn Lowry talk about the search for esoteric meaning within various political statements or even research questions or interests or lines of inquiry and how that creates a sense of standing such that only certain people can talk about certain things. Uh, now, you've mentioned that you want to reclaim the notion of intersectionality from those who use it to take away other people's standing to talk about certain topics. What do you mean by that? And do you think that this search for esoteric meaning has infected college administrations, students, and entire ways of thinking? So I, I would expand that to say it's not just students and, and administrations. It's, it's many disciplines and many programs of study uh, more broadly than that. I, uh, I'm very proudly a graduate of the Kennedy School of Government that's up at Harvard, uh, program on inequality and social policy. I grew up in Overbrook Park, which is a very uh, interesting neighborhood outside of uh, Center City, Philadelphia. It went through incredible demographic change. I have long wanted to really understand quite a bit of that. Uh, I, I grew up there. I lived it. I, I saw it. I witnessed it. Uh, but it involves talking quite a bit about race and ethnicity. It talks about uh, various groups moving in and other groups moving out. It talks about questions of drugs, violence, uh, police. It talks – it would require – uh, looking at uh, questions of economics and so on. And time and time again, I was 
strongly advise to not pursue those sorts of questions, to not really dig deep in, in there, uh, largely because to the standing question, I didn't fit the right demographic profile to sort of study those. So I, I would just broaden your, your, your sort of question to saying it's a problem that has now infected, I think, most of higher ed and most of the academy. I cannot tell you how often I will uh, attend uh, someone else's lecture, uh, teach a course, uh, be in an academic setting. And before we can have a talk about the ideas, the person has to state uh, when he or she, they, however they want to identify themselves, gets up and says, I am X, Y, and Z. This is my experience. This is who I am to sort of value project why they have a right to talk about it, why they have a right to question it. Um, I am in no way, shape, or form saying that we should discount those, again, those intersectional and varied identities. They are hugely important. Uh, I have no problem with people wanting to talk about those. But by doing that, people are asserting ownership over what they, what they can talk about, what they can't. Uh, and by asserting ownership uh, through those various identities, they're then saying that if you don't fit certain identities or you don't check off a certain series of boxes, you don't have a right to talk about it. You don't have a right to question it. And if you do, there could be very real consequences. You could be causing offense. You could be triggering people into uh, a weird space that you know I, that they that the person who's questioning it may not understand. The experiences of various lives are so very very different. Uh, I don't like to talk deeply about this because it can open up a Pandora's box. But the reason it's important for me to to mention here, and the reason I want to address it, is it is shutting down the ability for students left and right to talk. I cannot tell you how many times a week I will have a student come into my course and complain to me, and they're 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 devastated. They go, "I want to ask about this, but I can't because the the they have to self censor the fear of retribution, the fear of uh, some form of reputational damage for uh, asking certain questions that are deemed off-limits because they don't have those sort of boxes to check or those sorts of experiences to, to again, to value project. Uh, that's very, very dangerous. This is the antithesis of what the academy is for. The academy is supposed to, and we talked offline a little bit about John Stuart Mill, the academy is supposed to have a cauldron of ideas. They need to be questioned, in, in impeached, interrogated, debated, and we have to be able to have real discourse around it. Now, at, at colleges and universities around the world, not just with students, but often with faculty, there are questions of who has a right to even sit at the table. Does that experience mean they can talk about it? Uh, I'll say this left and, and right. At, at Sarah Lawrence, we talk about public policy, but if it's uh, but I am systemically excluded, despite the fact I am very honored to be a visiting scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute, one of our nation's leading public policy think tanks. Uh, and it's, it's but it's it, it's true, you know, people at the school who have no relationship to the public policy world, who do not write policy briefs, who do not engage in that that world, will comment on things. But I am systemically never invited at this point, to, to comment on these things. Um, because for whatever reason, my background doesn't belong in the room in their judgment. Uh, am I offended by this? No, I, I'm, I'm happy to do other things. I, I'm very, very busy anyway. I do have research, students, family, and so on. But this is bad for the academy, and I'm not an outlier. I want to be very clear. This is not me saying, it's just happening to me. This is happening everywhere. Uh, and I've been doing research for years about this. Our professors who don't fit certain molds, and this applies to folks on the left and the right, I want to be very clear about this, are afraid to talk. We have data, I have data, I've written it up in Inside Higher Ed a few times, uh, and it's been made very clear, faculty are afraid to speak, they're afraid to say certain things, because they don't want to have happen what happened to me, they don't want the mob turning on them. One of Lowry's refrains is, treat me like a human being. Yes. Treat, treat me with mm -hmm. the complexity that I deserve as a human being, not just as a figurehead for, for Glenn Lowry. He's a black man, for you, white and Jewish. Yet, at the same time, so much of the response to your calls for viewpoint diversity have centered around this idea of we can't debate our humanity. Our humanity, based on various identities, which normally couched in terms of marginalization, our marginalized identities are not up for debate. Which one is it? Which one is is truly dehumanizing? Exactly. I, I, I mean, I think we, we kind of agree on the answer here, but I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Sure. I, I mean, the idea is to treat everyone like a human, to recognize everyone has a narrative. The world is not that simple. Uh, Facebook used to have in its early days... 
uh, a status update where it would simply be it's complicated uh, for a relationship status. I love that. I love that idea because that is what life is. Life is messy. And uh, not just D.C., everywhere is complicated. Every, every student I, I ever meet has a very complicated life. I think that if, if people would open up, we would all realize it, it's difficult. And the ultimate sign of uh, humanity and respect is to treat people with uh, that understanding that, yes, everyone comes to the table with baggage. We all have it. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's not assume that certain topics are off limits. Let's not continue to uh, assume that people have evil intent. You know, when I questioned in the New York Times piece in October the ideological balance of our programming, people argued that I dehumanized them and I delegitimized them. No, not at all. They chose to read it that way, and then they chose to attack. I have been waiting now for six months for one person at Sarah Lawrence College to refute my point. They have yet to do it. Um, I'm happy to talk about it in, 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 in a serious, systematic way with them. I'd like them to show me that actually their, po- their programming is more balanced. I don't believe it is. Hopefully they will become more balanced from this public scrutiny. But, no, the ultimate way of, of recognizing humanity and showing respect and, 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 and showing love for the others to recognize that people just are asking questions. I, um, I can't tell certain stories uh, about certain seminars I've had because uh, a listener could figure out which student I'm referring to, but I, I cannot tell you how many times I've been in a course where a student has asked a question. They would identify with a, a series of identities, but because they didn't identify with one in particular, other students would jump on them. I've had students run out of my classroom devastated in, in tears. I've had a number of students leave Sarah Lawrence College because they can't handle that and don't want to put up with it, and they shouldn't have to handle that. You know, if we want to talk about a safe space, this, the, you know, the classroom should be a safe space to discuss ideas. That's my job to make sure that it is a place where we can actually argue. But students, faculty, administrators alike uh, are, are worried about sort of this mob mentality that we talked about and the idea of bringing that intersectionality in. And um, we need to push back on that. I think Lowry's right. Real respect is treating everyone like a human, not just a set of labels or a set of boxes we can check off to say, I can talk about this and you can't. A hugely controversial statement in this day and age, it seems. And I I hope that we can find some antagonist to come fight back against that notion. Uh, but until then, we're going to return to Glenn Lowry's 1994 lecture, Self-Censorship in Public Discourse. So, for example, let's suppose we talk about discussion within the... Uh, Cuban community in South Florida concerning uh, Castro, American relations with uh, Castro. Let's suppose that a certain member of that community thinks it worth entertaining at least the prospect that relaxing the trade embargo with Cuba would actually be a positive boon for the development of democratic institutions on the island. I hope you understand, in my presenting this example, that I have no brief here about Cuba. That's the reason I'm talking about that question and not some other. Right? I mean, I hope you see that the problem that I'm discussing is with us all the time, even right here in this lecture room. That is, even though I might presume at the American Enterprise Institute that I have a relatively sympathetic audience, I can never entirely relinquish my own strategic calculations about what motives you might impute to me from my own choices, even the choices of the examples that I use to illustrate the ideas that I'm trying to convey to you. And as I want to be effective, I want to be heard by you, I want to get past all of the uh, possible barriers to effective communication, I'll select an example to start out with that's at some distance. I have no position on the Cuban question. But within the Cuban community, immigrant community of South Florida, the act of opening the question of whether or not uh, Mr. Castro's government should be permitted some more um, friendly economic relations with the United States is not, just the, is not just to make an argument. It's not just some exercise. It's an expression that raises profound questions of who is the person who's saying this and how do they relate to us? Do they share our deep commitments? Do they have any idea this young 29-year-old whippersnapper down here from the Harvard Business School now talking about opening up trade relations with some abstract foreign relations argument, some theory about the interaction between markets and democracy? Do they know the price that was paid by those of us of the generation who were run off that island? So... The ability to carry on a discourse within that community about, that, about this particular question might well be understood to be impeded by the uh, meanings with which any such argument will be freighted. Now, I was brought up in the high-minded tradition that ad hominem inference had no place in legitimate public debate. I believed that for many years until I started participating in public debate myself and found that it seemed to matter a great deal whether or not the article was in commentary or it was in someplace else. 
I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I really, naively, I confess, didn't understand why it seemed to matter. The article was the article. It was either right or it was wrong. I mean, refute it. If it's wrong, what difference does it make? But why would you publish there? Don't you know what those people are about? Until it seemed to matter, in all sorts of ways, good and bad, that I am a black person saying things that I would say. I would get the immediate attention of my colleagues in faculty meetings at Harvard when I would open my mouth to address any question. Somehow there was something about the man that made the fact of the observation more salient. Until, of course, those observations began to be critical observations about certain sacred presumptions of the institution, until I became a defender of the honor of my people, insisting that a uniform standard be applied in making appointments or admissions decisions. Then again, the ad hominem inference came, but this time with a sting. What kind of black would say that? He's closing the door behind him, right? He's benefited from it, and now he wants to take it away. And when I would object, but the presumption that I've benefited from it, you're dishonoring me. Treat me like a human being, like an equal. And I couldn't be heard. So it matters who's saying things. We want to know what kind of person is speaking to us. I give some examples in this paper, far away from the um, conflicts of our, of our day. I'm tempted to say the petty political conflicts, because I think in some of these examples, the issues are, are of more import, of how this kind of process, when operating within a community, can end up having a profoundly debilitating effect on the capacity for political deliberation, on the quality of public decision, on the extent to which questions really get investigated fully and important decisions are made in a manner that's totally informed by the available information. What I have in mind here is the following kind of problem, the problem where a consensus comes about that certain kinds of expression have meanings above and beyond what might literally be attempting to be conveyed. They stand in for something. They're symbolic. Then we draw the conclusion that a person who's unwilling to engage in the symbolism must not believe in some cherished value of the community. And as a consequence, we're prepared to ostracize, or worse, those who don't go along with the expressive convention. Right? That's my model in a nutshell. My model is that political correctness, the current term, social conformity and public discourse, is an equilibrium, a self-reinforcing convention. It works because we expect it to work. It's a convention about the fact that expressing oneself in a certain way conveys some larger meaning. And when we find people who willfully choose not to follow the convention, we're prepared to draw a conclusion that, in effect, they don't share the value which is symbolically reflected in that particular conventional form of expression. Now, the kicker here, the thing that makes this work, is that in many circumstances it is correct to presume that people who don't share the value would be more willing to run the risk of ostracism by breaking the convention and expressing themselves in an unapproved way, a disapproved way. It's, it's the fact that it really is informative about the kind of person that I'm talking with to see whether or not they're prepared to labor over the gender pronoun, the third person singular, he or she. Right? I write a paper here. I use he throughout. And, of course, I'm you know, playing with my reader a bit when I do that, but it, it's to make my point. Then in a footnote I say, well, of course I could have said she. Let me just tell you, I flipped a coin at the beginning and it came up heads, so I'm saying he. But you don't believe that, do you? <laughs> See, what makes this work is that everybody says he or she or something like that, right? or they have some tortured paragraph in the foreword about how they've you know, dealt with the question. And because they do that, my not doing it is informative about me. What does it cost me to go along with the convention? Certainly very little if I indeed embrace the value that the convention is reflective of. Cost me next to nothing to say African-American. It's just a couple of more syllables. Right? Cost me next to nothing. What kind of person labors over African-American, labors over he or she? You know, defends at great length the abuse of the language which is now upon us because of all of this politically correct expression. Well, the only kind of person who's prepared to do that is somebody who doesn't hold the value. I put that forward as an empirical statement. Therefore, when I see the person laboring about he or she or African-American or whatever it might be, I can confidently learn something about where they stand on the deeper question of women's place in society or equality for blacks or sensitivity to blacks, whatever it might be. I give the example of the debate about sanctions. Maybe it's inappropriate to raise that now, but with the 
euphoria about the events in South Africa, but I remember the debate, the debate about sanctions. And let me just stipulate, for the sake of argument, that the pro-sanctions people might have been right. I don't know that for a fact, but let me stipulate that because that's not what I want to talk about. Right in the cause-effect argument, if we do this, then that will happen. People said, if you do this, that will happen. This was done, that has happened. We can't know whether it caused it or whether it was in spite of it. Well, let me stipulate that the causality works in the right direction. My point is that there was very little debate about causality. There was very little evidence adduced about what the likely mechanism would be. At least in my precincts, when I heard this debate, when the city sprung up on the campus green and the classes were interrupted and the um, overseers or trustee meetings were set upon, the argument was rather different. It was we must stand on the right side of history. A certain course of action has to be taken because it has become imbued with a significance. It is a way of stating where we stand. To oppose it cannot be understood in any other way but to, to want to not say that we stand in this position. Your paper-thin rationalizations about, you know, what's the best management policy for the university's portfolio, you know, don't fool us. We know that the only kind of college president who wouldn't sign off on this demand is the kind who doesn't stand on the right side of history, who doesn't share our values. You can imagine the kind of unraveling, the kind of tipping phenomenon that would happen as first one and then another and then another moderate or liberal college president who have doubts about the wisdom of divesting their portfolios of certain stock give way to the student demands, making it progressively harder for those who haven't given way yet to defend their position. Endogenously, within the system, this particular mode of acting comes to have a certain meaning and effect. No single person controls it, and yet in the end, no one who wants their reputation to remain intact can resist it. It's this sort of the logic of this kind of equilibrium, this kind of adverse selection. Those who haven't yet tendered, we must presume, are hiding something. Must be the kind of people who can't see what this means. The meaning of the act becomes established by the fact that only certain kinds of people would be prepared to deviate from the consensus. There's no maliciousness here. There's no conspiracy, I'm arguing. But that's the way it can work out. But what, what happens, though, if the decision actually has a powerful consequence for the quality of life of the group of people who are making it? Suppose, with respect to sanctions, of course, it did not. It, it might have affected those in South Africa adversely, but it meant very little. Uh, to those who are, uh, make, who are engaging in the advocacy in the United States. But, I mean, the examples abound. We're in the union hall. Someone yells, strike, strike. The bosses are crooks. Somebody else says, but we can't afford to strike. The offer is reasonable. And what kind of person would say that? The solidarity, the act of lashing out, of striking, gets imbued with a meaning all of its own. It's a way in which we show that we hold a certain value. Who's prepared to be clearly defined by taking the uh, opposite position as someone who doesn't hold that value, who holds holds the the value in so little esteem that he's prepared to be seen as an oppositionist in this regard. Or maybe the argument is, let's go to war. Let's march off. And the decision is not a calculation about uh, might and interest and so on, but rather becomes imbued with this symbolic significance of uh, what kind of people are we, what do we believe in. Now we're at war. And again, the act of standing against it can define someone as outside the community. Third example that I explore at some length in the papers uh, has to do with the McCarthyism, which was also can be understood as a period of political correctness. Though, of course, there were communists. There were national security questions. That's obvious. But there was also something else. There was this process where, as progressively more anti-communist civil libertarians elected to be silent, it became ever more accurately informative of the politics of a person that they were prepared to get exercised about the methods of the House on American Activities Committee. What kind of people were we dealing with, these quibblers? These people who are quibbling about some fine detail of civil liberties. Who are they, really? Let's look. Let's take a good look. What did they write in 1935-47? Where did they stand? these State Department eggheads who are prepared to interpret the events in China in a certain way. World historic forces at play about which we can do very little, accommodate ourselves to it and so forth. Who are they? My point is this. My point is that the capacity to have an effective discourse in which one discriminated effectively between criminal disloyalty on the one hand and 
a point of view which in retrospect perhaps has proven to be correct about, let's say, the events in China on the other, was undermined by this inferential process in which it was presumed that people prepared to speak in a certain way during those years must have some values. We couldn't know what their values are. We don't know what they think about the purges most of the time. There's not a written record there. And even when there is, it's ambiguous. We don't really know, but we're suspicious as hell. Why do they pick this case to fight? We get ourselves into a box. It becomes harder and harder for sensible things to be said. The methods that are being employed, employed by the people on the march become progressively more outrageous. Nobody's saying anything. Maybe we break out of it, but it can go on for a long time. It can go on for years, and a lot of damage can be done. No, it's not all bad, but it's not all good either. Smears. The smear. I have a technical definition for the smear in my paper. This is where there's a heightened public interest in some particular question of morality. It might be about communism. It might be about race. Right? But we all want to know where, we, where each other stand on this question because it's palpable. It's very important. It's central to our public lives. And therefore, figures are vulnerable if doubts can be raised about where they stand. Right? In a certain climate in which we're busy ferreting out the deviants, finding those who don't believe in the true belief, it becomes easy to take somebody who you disagree with because they were on the wrong side of the New Deal and smear them. Let's see if we can effectively raise some doubts about where he stands on this important question. Isn't that what happened with Robert Bork? Right? I'm not in the McCarthy period anymore. It's a little uncomfortable back there. Let me zip forward. Uh, let, me, let me just talk about uh, one other class of cases. I try to go through and say, what are the consequences of this kind of phenomenon that I've identified for the quality of public deliberation in a range of areas in American public life? Right? Clearly, on the race question, we have, notwithstanding the fact that the environment has changed greatly in the last 10 years, I think, some of the problems that are of the same kind, not, of course, of the same degree as what I was getting at with the Yininger example. Namely, that there are um, formulaic moralisms that people invoke as a way of dealing with a question and, and as a way of avoiding the hard-edged and painful, genuine moral reflection that would be required in order to make progress on analyzing the problem. Classic example on the page of the Wall Street Journal op-ed page Recently, my friend Randall Kennedy's essay about blacks and crime, where he starts out making the point that uh, if you have a different penalty for the trading of crack cocaine than you do for powdered cocaine, there's some people who want to say that that is discriminatory because blacks are more likely to trade crack cocaine. He observes, but, you know, the problem is that uh, blacks are catching hell because of the traffic in crack cocaine. So the person who says it's a discriminatory uh, burden on the black community has allowed a few criminals to define the interests of the black community. Darn right. It's a discriminatory burden on them, but it's also, in a discriminatory fashion, disproportionately beneficial to blacks whose lives are improved by getting the traffic and crack cocaine down when one has this differential penalty. How did it come to be that we defined discriminatory incidents purely in terms of the interest of the people who were engaging in the criminal activity, he asks. That's a good question. When Shelby Steele was here a few weeks ago, he asked another good question. Why is it that after the riot, when the, uh, I think it was Dan Rather smoldering with compassion was his phrase? <laughs> when all of the, uh, it's worth repeating, it's his phrase, but it's worth repeating. When all of the guys were out there with microphones talking to these guys, did nobody say, oh, so you're a member of a gang, are you? What's the initiation practice of your gang? Is it true that you actually have to shoot somebody? in order to be a member in good standing in this gang? And if that's so, let me see, I count 5,000 members, so that's quite a few people shot. Quite a few more than I gather have been shot by the LAPD recently. How do you account for that? Gang members got on Ted Koppel and nobody asked him that question. This is the same press corps that President Clinton berates for being so vicious. <laughs> Can't make any sense of it. Well, a, an effective moral analysis of our race problem would deal with that and many other such questions and would deal with it forthrightly. But of course, what kind of person would make that kind of argument? What, what kind of person would be prepared to say that kind of thing? It was given 25 years ago, obviously, but so many of the themes are similar to the kind of things that we talk about today, mm -hmm. as, as we've discussed over the last few minutes here. Maybe some of the buzzwords are different. I don't think Glenn Lowry could conceive of talking about intersectionality necessarily, mm -hmm, sure. which was a term that was just getting off the ground in, in academic circles at the time. Uh, but you're you're commenting on how Lowry's 
views or understandings of, of this phenomenon may have shifted over the past 25 years. Can you just, just speculate a little bit sure. for us about what you think may have changed? So I've been thinking very, very much about his comments about uh, being able to value project and who can say what and, and how identity factors into where you produce certain documents and, and what sort of outlets will publish and what won't. And I wonder, was that a function at the time of him being an economist, uh, you know, years and years and years ago with the economics profession? And, and most departments were very, very siloed. So if you were an economist, you looked at values, you looked at uh, preferences, and you might stipulate here's how people get to those preferences and those values, but it wouldn't be the necessarily the, the major area of inquiry. Nowadays, that's certainly uh, very much, it's very, very different. Uh, economists and people like Gary Becker have, have shifted the focus to understanding all these social phenomenon. But but you wonder if you were in a very traditional economics field and he was at Harvard uh, at, at the time, if if he just had not really been exposed to some of the ideas, uh, you know, as, as they are now, uh, that were coming out of uh, sociology and anthropology that focused so deeply on identity, that focused on various communities. Do you think he's naive? No, I don't know if he were naive at the time. I wonder if. When you talk to economists, they, for the long, not they, they don't do it anymore. But there's, we've had the behavioral revolution in economics. Yes. But prior to that, which is when he would have been doing some of this, the social science approach is about preferences, values, norms. Um, they don't necessarily consider the larger social structure. That's what led to the behavioral revolution in econ- economics, uh, and they get it now. They, without any hesitation, economists are well aware of this. But I'm wondering, 25 years ago, if this was just completely new as, as, as a, to, to him coming out of it. Um, you know, there, there, used to, there used to be, even when I was in, in graduate school, this idea that there's this large disconnect. You know, if you're uh, an economist, you, you study how people maximize their utilities. If you're a sociologist, you look at how the folks around you shape your identity and, and, and then how that moves society forward. If you're a psychologist, you focus on the individual neuroses or lack thereof that you may have that shape who you are. Uh, we are much more interdisciplinary today than, than we were. Uh, and I, I think there are incredible values to that because we can harness various tools and ideas from various departments. On, on the other hand, it has allowed some of these other ideas to take hold and spread very widely on, on college and university campuses. So uh, it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. So much of what you've discussed has been almost dystopian. So I'd like to turn for a second to hope, solutions, potential ways to rectify this serious problem of what Lowry refers to as the self-reinforcing norms of self-censorship. One idea that obviously comes to mind, and I think you've been involved with Jonathan Haidt and Heterodox Mm -hmm. Academy, is a more heterodox faculty, more heterodox administration, more heterodox curricula uh, that can break up this self-reinforcing cycle. Mm-hmm. Is there some argument to be made here for <laughs> affirmative action, which is a bit ironic given uh, Lowry's background sure. and the example that he uses of affirmative but affirmative action, action for academics. Affirmative yes. action for conservative, free market, natural rights theory. Sure. <laughs> academics, is that the answer? Or something else that came to mind for me while listening to this was, well, if we just write everything anonymously, people will stop thinking about does this person have this standing? They'll be forced to reckon with the arguments themselves. Oh, the idea of going anonymous is intriguing and fascinating, but academics aren't going to do it. People want credit. Remember, people don't go into the academy for money. You know, we, we don't generally enter this world because we uh, care about uh, living luxurious lives and taking fancy vacations. We do it because we, the, most of us, love the you know the idea of figuring out new things and and. I'll just say it, ego. We want to be regarded as having important ideas. So anonymous and anonymous writing and anonymity strikes me as a, an idea that's intriguing, but again, very, very hard to, to do within uh, the academy. As for affirmative action for academics, hate it. Uh, and, I, I, and I think that, uh, and that's a strong word, but I, I really dislike it, especially um, given what we believe here at, at AEI. Um, how do I identify who's a conservative? What sort of metrices do we use? Um, you know, I don't like pigeonholing people. I also believe people can evolve intellectually. They can shift their ideas. I've certainly had many personal values and ideas change over time. And and, uh, and I hope our listeners understand that, uh, and I hope maybe someone from Sarah Lawrence hears this, Sarah Lawrence has a lot of problems, and the administration is not in good shape. But I would I will go to my, my grave saying that the 
perspectives that I was able to see at Sarah Lawrence were instrumental in shaping who I am today. And I'm very grateful that certain ideas were challenged and certain worldviews were challenged. That's the whole point of higher ed. As for uh, a group like Heterodox, which I am intimately involved with, um, I think this is very, very important. I don't believe in bringing government into this. I don't believe in outside boards trying to check this. Hence, I don't really like the idea of uh, affirmative action. Um, trustees know that we have trouble. The amount of page views that I'm getting, I receive uh, to this day still hundreds of emails a week from people around the country writing uh, and offering support for this idea that we need more viewpoints on, on college and university campuses. Places like the University of California are actually trying to take the lead on free speech and, and viewpoint diversity. Uh, same thing at, at places like um, the University of Chicago. At your alma mater at Princeton, Robbie George and, and Cornell West are even trying to do that. I'm not so sure how effective it is, but it's certainly worth a shot. Uh, I think that academics know this is a problem. And one of the reasons I wrote the piece in the New York Times is because when you talk to academics, even the most left-wing and right-wing academics regularly make the claim, and if you look at syllabi and look at how they teach, that they do try to bring in diversity to the classroom. Now, this is not absolutely the case. There are plenty of faculty who don't do that, but there are plenty of folks who are extreme in both directions, personally and ideologically, that still attempt to teach balance. Uh, the reason I wrote the op-ed uh, in the Times was because it's the administrators, uh, the folks who run student life, the folks who run the residence halls, the places where the socialization occurs and students really live and where, you know, is where this is really most uh, concerning and why we need to pay attention to it. Faculty know this is a problem. Heterodox is growing as a group. And universities are responding. The thing that I teach my students and the thing I think we are well aware of here at AI is that policy doesn't occur quickly. Uh, sometimes, you know, there can be an executive order, of course. But for the most part, these things have to be built up slowly through consensus. I think the academy is well aware of it. I've been working very hard to do that. Uh, Glenn Lowry has been a big supporter of heterodox and is working to, to, to do that as well. And uh, I, I think... Um, that you know, AI is, has actually been on the front lines with all of this, with both me and my colleague Charles Murray. You know, Charles was uh, attacked and protested at Middlebury uh, a number of years ago. This brought incredible attention and focus to this problem and to these monocultures, these intellectual and ideological monocultures on our university and college campuses. We know it's a problem. People are pushing back. It's just going to take some time. A bracing and honest conversation with Professor Sam Abrams. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.